Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Start. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Maury. Appreciate that. Good to be back here with you. Glad to have my daughter, Brianne, with me. My wife is resting at the Kosh residence uh, down the road here, and I think Doug and Judy went to uh, London, Ontario, so uh, Doug is speaking up there today. I don't usually have a earphone thing on, so uh, hopefully I'll get used to it and uh, get get going with the message here today. So we're probably going to head over to uh, Niagara Falls tomorrow, see the falls, and then head back home. And uh, Brianne starts school on Tuesday, so uh, we're trying to get a little little trip in before uh, she gets back to school. So it's good to be here again, see all of you. Um, I'll get to talk to you a little bit as, uh, later as we finish up here today. But the title of my sermon today is Jesus and the Samaritans. And Maury actually addressed some of the scriptures, or close to some of the scriptures, I'll be addressing today initially to set this discussion up. But what I want to look at today is why did Christ use the example of the Samaritans a number of times in the New Testament? Why did he pick interaction with the Samaritans when he probably could have picked other people who he was discussing things with? I think there's a reason for that. And in order to understand that reason, we need to go back to the Old Testament to see who the Samaritans are, how they got started, and why there was this great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, when we think about this animosity, I want you to get something out of this message that you could use in the present day. And in order to do that, I want you to think of the Samaritans as maybe that group that you've had an issue with, whoever that group is for you. Now, I know in the church there have been issues with the Sunday keepers, as we call them at times, with Muslims, with Hindus, with whatever other belief system you want to think about, and even with other Sabbath keepers. Sad to say, but even with other Sabbath keepers, we've had issues. So when we think of the Samaritans and the problems between Jew and Samaritan, keep that in your mind as we go through this discussion today, and I believe you'll be able to get something from it and use the message as you go forward. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament and get a handle on who the Samaritans were. Now, all of you, of course, know that the kingdom of Israel split into two. There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom mainly consisted of ten tribes. The southern kingdom mainly consisted of the two or three tribes, depending on how you look at it, uh, of Israel. And what occurs is, Because the northern kingdom is not following God, the prophets are speaking against the northern kingdom. And finally, the northern kingdom falls 
the Assyrians take over the northern kingdom. And I want to read a little bit about that in 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. We're setting up who these Samaritans are before we get to the New Testament examples that Christ has with them. So 2 Kings 17, and I'm going to pick it up there in verse 22. 2 Kings 17, verse 22. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from His presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken away from their homeland, into exile, in Assyria, and they are still there. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria. Now that word Samaria, I just told you the northern kingdom was called Israel. But if you go back into the Old Testament, you will find that when they were the northern kingdom, when they were Israel, they got a hold of this city on a hill that was called Samaria, and it became their capital city, and they became known not only as Israelites, but also as Samaritans as you go through the Scriptures. So there is that interchange between the northern kingdom of Israel and this name the Samaritans, because they made their capital city Samaria. They wanted it to be like Jerusalem on this hill. Samaria was on a hill, and they wanted to have that similarity. And we'll see that happen again as we look at the beliefs of the Samaritans and the Jews a little bit later. The similarities, but also the differences. So what happens when ancient tribes or ancient kingdoms were overrun by a more powerful group, what occurs is the more powerful group would usually send in peoples from outside of the land. And the reason for that was they did not want an uprising to occur. Because not every last Israelite was taken out of the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity. Think of it like the major cities were overrun and taken by the Assyrians, But there were people out in the hinterlands living in Israel who did not live in the major cities. Maybe there were 40 over here and 50 over there. The Assyrians didn't worry about getting every last one of them. There were some Israelites still in the land when these pagan peoples came into the land that the Assyrians put there. And what happened was those pagans intermarried with the Israelites who were still in the land, and they had a synergistic or synchristic religion, a mixture of the beliefs of the Israelites with these pagan peoples. Let me show you that by reading a little further. Picking it up in verse 25 of 2 Kings 17. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, speaking of these people that the Assyrians put in the land. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, 
because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Now that's Yahweh that it's speaking of there. But remember, with all these pagans in the land, you got to remember the Israelites already had a mixed worship to begin with. They weren't doing everything correctly. So this religion is not the religion that it should be. Picking it up in verse 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men from Kutah made Nergal. And as you read through there, it talks about the different peoples and the gods and the shrines they set up to their various gods. Dropping down to verse 34. To this day they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. Dropping down to verse 40. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. And interestingly enough, when we look at a lot of Christianity today, we have the trappings of these pagan beliefs from time going back to this time uh, in ancient Israel. It's, it's continued on to the present day. Now that's a little bit about why there's some animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were worshiping God in a mixed way. So understand that. That's point number one I want to make. Now let's go into Ezra. Let's go into Nehemiah and bring up a couple other scriptures before we get to the New Testament. And Maury was there earlier today. But let's first go to Ezra. And again, this is after the Jews had been taken captive. And now the Jews are returning to their land. The Israelites never returned in mass to the northern kingdom like the Jews did, did return in mass back to their kingdom of Judah. And that occurred, as Murray said, in the early 500s, uh, in the late 400s BC, we have this exodus of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity because the Persians had taken over the kingdoms from the Babylonians, and the Persian king allowed the Jews to go back into their land. He even said, you can build your temple again. But there was a problem in building the temple that, that Mari alluded to, and we'll look at that in a moment. But let's look at Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1 for a moment. 
After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, now this is speaking of the Jews who had come back into the land, and there could have been some mixed Israelites in there too, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. The neighboring peoples it's referring to there are the Samaritans who lived in what was ancient Israel, the northern kingdom. That's what it means by the neighboring peoples. They started to intermarry with the Jews who were coming back into the land. Notice what it says. With their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So even some of the leaders of the Jews who were coming back from the Babylonian captivity were mixing with the Samaritans to the north who had some Israelite blood in them. But the reason God is upset, folks, is not because of ethnic differences. It's not because of racial differences. It's because of religious differences. There's no way you can get around it. Yet, many of our separatists out there, whether they be white white or black or whatever, use scriptures like this to say you shouldn't mix racially. That's not what this is saying at all. This is talking about religion, and everywhere else in the Bible, it's talking about mixing religion rather than color or ethnicity. God doesn't care about color or ethnicity. Reading on, notice what it says in verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, O my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you. My God, because of our our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens from the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. And Canada and the U.S. better recognize that, okay? Canada and the U.S. better recognize what it says here because we are in for a reckoning if we don't turn back to our God. And we're all going in the wrong direction right now, folks. So we see here that when the Babylonians come back into the land, they've got an issue with the people who are living to their north Because the people who are living to their north are mixing in marriages with them and leading them astray by having the Jews begin to worship these false gods that God was adamant about them not worshiping. So you start to see why is there some animosity here. Because the Jews of Jesus' day knew these scriptures. They would have read these scriptures and understood these scriptures And they would have put this on the Samaritans, okay? Or at least 
who the Samaritans were at this time. And we'll talk about who they were at Jesus' time a little bit later. Now, another scripture I'd like you to look at in Ezra is back in Ezra chapter 4. And maybe I should have started with that scripture. But it gives us another little excerpt of what was going on when the Jews came back into the land. Ezra 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple, now the enemies it refers to again are the Samaritans. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezerhaden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So you see what they're saying? For the last couple hundred years, the pagans who were put in the land by the Assyrians were seeking out Yahweh. The only problem was they were also seeking out all these other foreign gods. So they come to the Jews when they come into the land and say, hey, let us help you build a temple because we worship this Yahweh also. But what did the Jews say? Here's what they said. Notice verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So when the Samaritans slash Israelites see that the Jews don't want to play with them, they get upset by that, and they use political machinations because they are under the Persians also. They start to talk to the Persians. They try to stop the Jews from building this temple. And for a period of time, they are successful. So once again, the Jews of Jesus' day would read this scripture and understand, we don't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans... We're slowing us down from building the temple. The Samaritans were worshiping false gods and mixing it with the worship of Yahweh. So there's some bad blood in the early beginnings of the Samaritan peoples with the Jews. One other example I will cite is over in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13 and only verses 28 and 29 there. Nehemiah. 13, verse 28. One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Now, Sanballat was a Samaritan, folks. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. Now, to tell you more about this story, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Sanballat had a temple built on Mount Gerizim, so his son-in-law that we're reading about here in Nehemiah 13, Eliashib, could function as a priest 
And again, this was cause for concern among the Jews because Eliashib was actually a Jewish priest who went bad, okay? He went over to the Samaritans. His, his father-in-law was a Samaritan, and he started to become a priest within the Samaritan system of religion. So we see this, these sins that were committed by not only the rank-and-file Jews, but the Jewish priests and leaders were mixing with the Samaritans in ways that God did not want. Now, as we move through history, from the 400s B.C. down to the 100s B.C., the Samaritan religion starts to change. It starts to lose some of its rank paganism, but it still does not become the ancient religion that it should have been, at least according to what the Bible would want them to have been. But as we get to the 100s, you all know that the Greeks beat the, beat the Persians and took over this area and ruled it. And after Alexander died, one of his generals, known as the Seleucid Empire, took over and the Seleucids put down the Maccabean Revolt in the 100s B.C. What's interesting about the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews rising against the Seleucid Empire, which was over them, was that the Samaritans allied themselves with the Seleucids in helping to put down the Jewish revolt. So once again, that bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans is felt once again only about a hundred years before Christ is born. When we get down to the time of Christ being born, According to John Mackenzie, in the Dictionary of the Bible, he wrote, he says a band of Samaritans profaned the temple in Jerusalem by scattering the bones of dead people within the temple. And that's right at the, about the time Jesus is born. Another incident between Samaritans and Jews. So now that you have that background, okay, you have an understanding as to why there's this bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. But when we get down to the time of Jesus, the Samaritan religion has also changed. It has gotten a little bit closer to what it used to be when the Israelites first became a northern kingdom. Here is the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans at the time of Jesus. They both believed in one God. All right? So they both believed in one God. The Samaritans got rid of some of that paganism and all those other gods that they had beliefs in. The Jews believed in all the Old Testament prophets. The Samaritans believed only Moses was a prophet. They didn't believe Jeremiah's uh, what Jeremiah wrote. They didn't believe what, what Daniel wrote. They didn't believe what Isaiah wrote. Those were not scriptures to the Samaritans. And that brings us to another difference. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The reason the Samaritans worshipped in Mount Gerizim was in Deuteronomy. That's where they were supposed to worship at that time. But when we move through the history of the Jews and Israelites we find that Jerusalem became 
the location to worship, but because the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, they went to Mount Gerizim as their holy place to worship God. So those are some of the major differences between the two groups at the time of Jesus. And when we think about our beliefs in Sunday Keepers, we all believe in the same God, don't we? In a sense, we do. It's the same God of the Bible. Whatever we believe about Catholics or Baptists, they do have their NIVs and King Jameses, and, and they read them and study them just like we do, okay? So at least they got the same scriptures, although the Catholics add some scriptures, I must say, okay? But isn't it interesting that there are some similarities between Sunday keepers and our tradition? So think about that as I go further in this discussion in that animosity between these two groups. Now, having said all that, I want to say one more thing before I get to these New Testament scriptures. You're all familiar with Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer, as they call him, and you can read about him in Acts chapter 8. What's interesting about Simon the Sorcerer is he was a Samaritan. And what else is interesting about Simon the Sorcerer? According to Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, in his book Against Heresies, Irenaeus believed that Simon was the originator of Gnostic doctrine that infiltrated the early Christian church. So isn't it interesting that this man who wanted to know about the Holy Spirit, who wanted to become a Christian, kind of went off on a wrong tangent, which has led many other people astray over the history of Christianity. And he was a Samaritan. Okay, so with all that backdrop now, with all that backdrop, and that backdrop is important to understand what Jesus then says about the Samaritans in the gospel accounts. Now watch this. Early in Jesus' ministry, his attitude towards the Samaritans is very similar to the attitude most Jews had toward the Samaritans. But as we go through the gospel accounts, you will see Jesus' attitude changing towards the Samaritans. Now, why might that be? Well, God has a plan, right? And God's plan is going to go the way God wants it to go. It's not going to go the way Mike wants it to go, or the way Murray wants it to go, or the way anybody else wants it to go. God has his plan, and it'll be worked out. So one thing I'm going to tell you today is don't worry, folks. Don't worry about everybody else. Don't worry about the Muslims. Don't worry about the Sunday keepers. Worry about you getting yourself into the kingdom of God. That's one point I want to make today. So watch this. Watch Matthew chapter 10. And verse 5 and 6. And listen to what Jesus says very carefully here. Yeshua, our Messiah, says this. Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Verse 6. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So what is Jesus' instruction 
early in his ministry, don't even go to the Samaritans. Why? Because the Jews felt the Samaritans were outside the circle of trust. The Samaritans were people who had the wrong religion. You get what I'm saying here? And notice Jesus is feeding right into that concept, at least early in his ministry. And a lot of people say, well, this is the only time of salvation. No, it's not. No, it's not. We know that better than any other church, okay? Here's another example of that. If Jesus was trying to save everybody immediately, as soon as he started his ministry, why does he say only go to the lost sheep here? Because there's a plan, there's a purpose, he's working it out, and it's going to go the way he wants it to go. The way he wants it to go in the Father. Now, check this out. After that is said, we know in Acts 8, when we read about Simon the sorcerer, that the Jews were in that town preaching the gospel. They were preaching the gospel in a Samaritan town when you get to Acts 8. Now, what has happened when we get to Acts 8? Christ has died. He's gone to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the, the, the disciples know that they can now go to all peoples, that the gospel has opened up to everybody, but only after Christ's death has occurred. But as you'll see, when we get to the other scriptures about the Samaritans, Christ is beginning to open it up with them too. And you will see that as we get to those scriptures. Now, why, why is that important to understand? It's important to understand because of this. Don't forget this point. The Samaritans were not worshiping God correctly. Let me repeat it again. The Samaritans were not worshiping God correctly. Don't forget that statement as I continue through the rest of my discussion. All right? Let's pick it up now in Luke, and let's look at another interaction between the Samaritans and Christ and his disciples. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Luke 9. Now watch how things are changing a little bit in Jesus' demeanor towards the Samaritans. Just a little bit. Luke chapter 9 verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Remember, we worship in Mount Gerizim. Jews worship at Jerusalem. We don't like you Jews. You guys are doing it wrong. Verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, listen to what they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, why would they ask Jesus that? Why would they ask Jesus that? Do you think Jesus is going to say, let's destroy these people? You know he's going to say, no, let's not destroy them. But why would they ask him that? I submit to you that Jesus has not opened up yet about the details of this gospel that is opening up to everyone. What we read in Matthew 10, where he said, don't go to the Samaritans, I believe Jesus is still operating under that Jewish mindset, 
But notice what changes here. Notice what he says. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now, if you have the King James Version, the King James Version says this. Some say the Son of Man didn't come to destroy, but to save men's lives. I got the NIV. They don't put that in. I like the King James better with that, and it's likely that that is the more likely verse there. That the, the Son of Man did not come to destroy, but to save men's lives. Now, what paradigm were these two disciples operating under? Well, they were operating under this paradigm. If you turn back to 2 Kings chapter 1, why were they asking to call fire down from heaven to devour Samaritans? Here's why, folks. In 2 Kings chapter 1, I'm going to read to you something. 2 Kings 1 verse 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. Again, what was Samaria? It was the capital city of the northern kingdom and injured himself. This is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So he went, he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult, consult Balzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. So who is the king of the northern kingdom consulting? He's consulting a pagan god rather than the God of Israel, who was Yahweh. So God doesn't like that. And this is not too far removed from the actual split of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. So what happens? Well, since Elijah, notice verse 3, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Balzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. At this time, there were still prophets in the land. Even though the Israelites were getting off, off the tangent of how they should worship God, there were still godly prophets telling them that they were wrong. When we get down to the time of Jesus... John the Baptist was on the scene prior to Jesus, but there hadn't been any real prophets for a long time. So is God cutting some slack to the Samaritans at the time of Jesus? Because they were many hundreds of years into a religion that had changed dramatically over time. The folks here that we're reading about in 2 Kings, they were not hundreds and hundreds of years distant from the true worship of God. They were much closer to that worship. And what happens to these folks? Well, fire is called down by Elijah, and it devours the 50 guards who came to seize Elijah because the king thought that if he could grab that prophet and make him take back what he said, that that curse would not fall upon him. So that's why he sent these 50 soldiers to go get Elijah. When the second group of 50 went, again, fire came down on them and they were devoured. When we get to the third group of 50, imagine being the captain of that third group, knowing what happened to the other two groups. He says, Elijah, please understand, 
I'm here because the king told me to come. Elijah does not make fire come down on that third group, but he goes to the king, and that king ends up dying anyway because he had fallen away from the worship of the true God. What is the line in your King James Version when we get into Luke 9? He did not come to destroy, but to save men's lives. Remember, there's a plan of God. The plan was different in the Old Testament. God is only working with one nation. He knew they would fall away. And that's why Christ had to come. That is still part of the plan. And the gospel opens up in the new covenant age to everybody. But it wasn't open to everybody before. But we know from Revelation 20 that it will open up to those people when they are coming up in that second resurrection. So here we see a change in attitude from Jesus towards the Samaritans. And if we take the King James Version where it says he didn't come to destroy but to save men, who's he speaking about in that instance? Samaritan men, folks. Samaritan men. Because that's who they wanted to call the fire upon. But wait a minute. The Samaritans are worshiping God in the wrong way, right? Hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought. Let's go to Luke 10 now. One, one's chapter forward. Another incident with Samaritans. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Let's see what we find here. Luke 10 and verse 25. Now, this is what we read. Brianne read this earlier. We're going to read the preamble to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is important, folks. You've got to get context in Scripture. Please listen to what I'm saying. You've got to get the context of Scripture. You can read the story of the Good Samaritan and you can get a good message from it. But what comes before Jesus explains that story? That is important to understanding a greater truth about the Good Samaritan story that sometimes we don't get. Notice what comes right before, because this is how Jesus taught. When somebody had a question, Jesus would answer it. And then they would come back with a retort to Jesus. And then Jesus would often do this. He would then tell a story that brought up a finer point about the context of what he was discussing. Now watch this. What comes before the story of the Good Samaritan? Here's the context of the story of the Good Samaritan. Verse 25, Luke chapter 10. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Folks, folks, hear me out. What is the context of explaining the Good Samaritan? It has to do with eternal life, folks. It has to do with eternal life. Get this. Verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is about eternal life, folks. How am I going to get eternal life? Keep the law. Keep the law. Okay. Okay, now, now watch this. Verse 29. Here's the retort 
from the, the guy who knew the law. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now get this. Jesus then tells the story that Brianne read. You already heard the story, so I'm not going to repeat it. You heard the story, I'm not going to repeat it. But I am going to repeat verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him was the one who treated him as a neighbor. Okay? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, do you get what Jesus just said? Jesus said, there's a priest who knows how to worship God. There's a Levite who's worshiping God correctly. And there's a Samaritan who's not worshiping God correctly. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do like who? Like the Samaritan, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I agree that we need to keep the law. I agree we need to keep the law. So don't, don't go anywhere with what I just said yet. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it in a minute. But what I'm getting at is the context of the discussion is about getting eternal life. And Jesus uses examples of people who know the law and should be observing it correctly, although they had some deficiencies, no doubt. And he's comparing them to someone that the the hearers would understand doesn't know how to worship God correctly. Maybe think Sunday keepers, maybe think Muslims, okay? Hold on to that. I'm going to I'm going to bring it all together later, okay? But do you get what I'm saying here? And he says, go and do likewise. Like the guy who didn't know how to worship God correctly. At least he knew, at least he knew how to be a neighbor. And look, look at the word that's used in verse 37. The one who had mercy on him. Because I hope you all know that one of the higher aspects of the law is mercy, justice, and faithfulness. They trump the judgment of the law. Okay, and I'm going to bring that, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I want to, I want to make this plain to you. There's a fellow named Nathan Lane who wrote a, an article called An Echo of Mercy, a Rereading of the Parable of the Good Samaritan. And the use of the word mercy in Luke, the Greek word used for mercy there, is synonymous with the Hebrew word for mercy in Exodus 34, verse 6, according to Mr. Lane, who's a better versed in Greek and Hebrew than I am. But I'd like you to turn to Exodus 34, 6 to notice the type of mercy that Lane says this good Samaritan was operating under. Notice this in, in Exodus 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the merciful, in some translations, in my NIV it has compassionate, but that's the word I'm, I'm interested in right there. The Lord, the Lord, the merciful or compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and get this, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Folks, that's all about mercy. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
because the law still stands, folks. He punishes the children and the children of the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. What Mr. Lane is saying is that the mercy that the Good Samaritan exemplified is synonymous with God's characteristic of mercy that you're reading about in Exodus 34, verse 6. That blows me away. Because what Jesus is saying in that parable of the Good Samaritan is the Samaritan is using a godly characteristic of mercy that the priest and the Levite had no clue about. And so in that story at least, in the story at least, the Samaritan is operating the way God would operate rather than those who were keeping the law to the letter. Okay? Just hold on to that idea and hear me out. I believe in God's law. We should be keeping God's law. Okay? Don't hear me wrong here. But hold on to that because I'm going to get to the even more details about what I just mentioned there that will bring it all home to you. Now, let's look at James chapter 2 and let's understand something about the law and why Jesus can make a statement like that. James chapter 2. Again, we're in the New Testament, okay? James, under the New Covenant. These guys wrote with, that, with those things in mind. James chapter 2, verse 8. James 2, verse 8 says this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism... Oh, those Samaritans, they aren't godly people. Oh, those Muslims, they're terrible people. Those Hindus, they've got a million gods. Those, those Shintoists don't even have a god. Those Sabbath keepers over there, they don't have the right calendar. You fill in the blank, folks. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, at just one point. So I don't care what your ideas are on the calendar. I don't care what your ideas are on the holy days. I don't care what your ideas are on a lot of things. Because none of us have it perfectly understood. Not one of us understands the law perfectly. So we are all at fault when it comes to the law. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And Jesus even expanded on the law. It's not just committing adultery. It's even thinking about it, folks. You are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because, get this, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, 
triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a higher point, folks, within God's law. So, yeah, you want to tithe properly, but, folks, you want to take care of that half-dead man. That's more important than tithing properly. You get what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm saying? And Scripture bears me out, folks, because I'm going to turn to that Scripture right now to prove that point over in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 and verse 23. Woe to you. Listen to who he's talking to. He's talking to the people who knew the law the best. And among God's, among the churches of Christendom on the earth today, folks, who knows God's law the best? I believe the Sabbath-keeping churches do, okay? I believe our church does. Are we perfect? No. But I believe we know the law better than Sunday keepers who are going on Sunday, okay? And aren't keeping the holy days. So look who he's talking to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. So, folks, don't get me wrong. Tithing is important, but according to God's Word, there are higher aspects of the law. And he's telling us about it right now. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are they? Justice. Mercy. We've seen some examples of that. And faithfulness. Now, get what he says. This is important. Get what he says. I told you before, I'm all in on the law, folks. I'm all in on the law. And here's why. You should have practiced the latter... So you got to do the mercy, folks. you got to do the mercy without neglecting the former. Tithing is, is important, folks. It's part of the law of God. It brings you more into the characteristics of God. But there are higher aspects to the law. And what is Jesus getting at in some of these interactions with the Samaritans? He's getting at this, that some people who don't understand how to worship God correctly they still understand how to do some of the law correctly, and in some cases, higher aspects of that law. You get what I'm saying here? Notice this. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Folks, I can tell you about individuals I've interacted with in the church on a number of different issues that got so wrapped around the axle about that issue and were losing sight of these higher aspects of the law, of getting out there and volunteering and taking care of people and and helping people and that type of thing, rather than getting every little nuance of the law exactly right. It's important to understand it to the best of our ability, but we will always be a little short of understanding it completely correctly. No doubt about it. We should be doing it to our best, but we can't get it exactly right, folks. Don't forget these higher aspects in lieu of 
these things that we worry about, in my estimation, too much. Now watch this, Luke chapter 17, and then we'll go for the coup de grace in John chapter 4 and finish up. Luke 17, remember what the higher aspects of the law are? Mercy, justice, and faithfulness. And we've just had an example of mercy in a story with the Samaritan, right? Watch what happens in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and I'm going to pick it up there in verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. Watch this. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, get this, folks, one of these ten comes back. When he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And notice this. And he was a Samaritan. Why is Jesus putting this scripture into your Bible? I'm asking you that question. Why is he putting this scripture into your Bible when the Samaritans did not worship God correctly? Think about what we've already discussed. Now watch what happens here. The one who comes back is a Samaritan and falls on the ground and thanks him. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? And notice what Jesus says, except this foreigner. Okay, so Jesus is still playing under that paradigm a little bit. The Samaritans are the other. This is the other, okay? This foreigner, okay? Except this foreigner. Then, then get this. Then he said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What were the three higher forms of the law, folks? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And now in two stories with Samaritans, we see the Samaritans operating under higher forms of the law than the Pharisees and the Levites. Even though the Pharisees and the Levites knew all the law, they read the Old Testament that talked about how to love your neighbor, but they weren't exactly doing it, okay? They weren't exactly doing it. They got so wrapped up in the law that they lost the higher aspects of the law. And Jesus is making that clear. Now watch this, the big story, John chapter 4. This is where it all comes together. And you've heard this story before, but I think I'm going to pull a couple things out of here that maybe you didn't think about. Keep everything in mind we've discussed thus far. It's important that we do this one at the end. John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. Notice once again who Jesus is talking to as this story begins, that's another indication of the layers upon layers of symbolism within the Bible. John chapter 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So who are we talking about again as we get into the story of the Samaritan woman? The people who knew the law the best. 
But Christ had an issue with, with some of that. Now watch this, verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees are mentioned right before the story of the Samaritan woman, okay? Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, and I felt like that last night uh, driving all day, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, this is incredible in, in its own right, the fact that he's talking to a foreign woman, the fact that it's a woman, first of all, then it's a foreign woman. I'm not going to get into that, but let's read on. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So here we go, folks, the tribalism, it's there. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can I, you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, get this, folks, if you knew the gift of God, folks, what is the gift of God? Think about it. And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, what's Jesus saying here to this woman who doesn't worship God correctly? He's talking about what? Living water? What's that? It's the Holy Spirit, right? What's the Holy Spirit all about? That gets you to eternal life. You get baptized, you repent, you get baptized. The Holy Spirit in you can lead you to eternal life. Folks, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And what did I say about context? What is the context of the discussion? It's eternal life, folks. Watch. If you still doubt me, watch what he says next. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Okay. And you can insert there. Are you greater than Muhammad? Are you greater than Confucius? Are you greater than uh, Hanuman, the monkey god? Okay. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons, his flocks, and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water. Notice what he says. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever... Folks, that doesn't put any qualifications on anybody. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, let's get back over what I've been saying today. I said there's a plan of God. In the Old Testament, we know God was only working with Israel. The Israelites would destroy other peoples. They would even kill the babies of these other peoples. And many people on the outside of Christendom, they don't get that about us. How could you worship a God who destroys tells his people to destroy the babies of other gods because God is higher than us. He's bigger than us, and he's got a plan. He's got a plan to make it all work out, and we've got to have faith in his plan. But it's his plan. He's going to do it his way, not our way, folks. We can't look at this through our limited physical eyes. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Folks, what Jesus is talking about with the Samaritan woman is how to get eternal life. But you've got to remember, 
He's talking to a woman who doesn't worship God correctly. You get what I'm saying here? He's beginning to open this up to everybody now, and we're going to see that happen in a moment. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here and drawing water. So does she want this water? Yeah, she wants it. Do you think if you told a Buddhist that I can get you eternal life, he'd be interested? Do you think if you told a Muslim, I can get you eternal life, he'd be interested? And Muslims have heard of Jesus. Buddhists have heard of Jesus. They just don't believe in them as the be-all, end-all. But notice this Samaritan woman. And put in her place anybody else who's not worshiping God correctly. Put in her place anybody in today's world who's off on the wrong tangent. Notice what comes next. Verse 16, he told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Do you catch what he's saying to her? Not only, now we don't know if five husbands put her away, okay, but Because she's living with a guy now who's not her husband, the more possible understanding of this is this woman's a little loose. This woman's a little loose. Now, I don't know that for sure, but just from the context, that is a definite possibility, okay? And when you think of the Samaritan people, what was it about them? They went off and worshipped the false god, okay, instead of the real god they were married to. Okay, interesting, all the symbolism that's, that's happening here. Also interesting that she had five husbands. Five different peoples originally came into the land of Samaria. Five different peoples originally came in. Again, I'm not saying that, that that's definite there or anything, but that's just interesting to, to note that. Now, watch this. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. What's just happened? Jesus, who this woman has never met before, has just told her things about her life that no stranger would know. How would a stranger know that she's had five husbands and the guy she's living with now is not her husband? This is a miracle, is it not? God's ability to know people on earth, God as man on earth, Gives her a miracle. Now, here's what I want want you to get. Jesus shows her a miracle. Have all the people in history seen miraculous things? No. Many, hardly anybody in, in the history of mankind has seen miracles. Is this miracle that Jesus is performing right now impacting this woman? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Watch what happens. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we should worship is in Jerusalem. Now get this. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So it doesn't matter. There's going to come a time it doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem. And there's people in the Sabbath movement, folks, who say you've got to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast correctly. Okay, but what's Jesus saying here? He's saying there's there's coming a time. It doesn't matter who you're worshiping. 
Okay? A lot of these things that we get all involved with aren't going to matter, folks. Those higher things of the law are going to matter, although the law matters. Don't, don't hear me wrong here. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Do you get what he's saying here? You're still worshiping God incorrectly. You worship what you do not know. You believe in one God, but you don't know that God. Then watch what he says. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews have the law, folks. They have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. And they know how to worship God because it's all there. All right? The Samaritans went off on a tangent. The Samaritans limited their scriptures. And Jesus is telling her straight up, you guys are wrong in how you're worshiping God. But what does he say? Watch. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked. What do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She had heard about him. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then he goes into this discussion about the fields being ripe for the harvest. Okay, he's talking about the world. He's talking about the gospel opening up. Notice verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. A miracle was performed in front of her that helped make her a believer. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. These people that were worshiping God incorrectly have now had an opening made for them, and they step into that opening. But folks, Christ is there tabernacling with them. They were lucky that he was there to open them up to these possibilities. What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen in the future? Christ returns the second time, right? Why a thousand-year kingdom? Because Christ will physically be tabernacling with the world at that time. We will be there in spirit form. When those physical beings see us and realize what has happened, don't you see the similarities to this story? When they see miracles we might be able to perform, and when they see the world transform from what they knew it used to be, that will be a miracle in their mind. And I believe, like the Samaritan woman, they will fall on their knees and believe. Because it's part of God's plan. He's got a plan. He's laid it out. It's going to work out. And we see indications of it throughout Scripture. Notice two days. Again, I'm speculating here. I'm speculating. Understand that? Murray, tell Charles Gross I'm speculating. Why two days? 
He's tabernacling with them for two days. Jesus comes for the second time, sets up his kingdom. A, a, a thousand years is as a day to God. So let's say that's one day. And then the, the second resurrection occurs. And we believe all the dead who've ever lived are going to have their opportunity to come up and follow God for a period of time. Some speculate a hundred years. There are other ideas out there. Could we call that a second day? Because just because it says a day to God is a thousand years could entail a period of long period of time. Okay. Or, or a hundred years or whatever. Is it two days that God again tabernacles with man to make him aware of the plan? I don't know. Just speculating there, but it's interesting to see that this woman comes to believe in him and she's a Samaritan. She doesn't believe what she needs to believe to, to worship God correctly. But Christ is saying, no, no, she's gonna, she believes in me. I'm gonna give her eternal life. I believe this woman and the other Samaritans that came that day to hear him honestly believed in the message of Christ and became followers of, of him and, and will be in that first resurrection is my belief. So what did we learn from our discussion today? Number one, we need to be careful in judging others, other communities, other communities of belief. Those communities are wrong. I get it. I totally get it. But look at the examples Christ made with this community of wrong believers in your Bible who still had some redeeming qualities. Look at these other communities of believers out there and understand that that there go I, but for the grace of God. If I had not had these things opened up to me, I'd be out there believing in these other things. The law does matter. It does not save us, though. Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him is what saves us. And mercy, justice, and faithfulness are higher aspects of that law. And finally, focus on what you need to do. What you need to do. Don't worry about the woman or the man who's been married six times. Don't worry about the woman or the man who's out carousing on the street. Don't worry about the woman or the man who's mixed up in false religion. Get yourself together. Get yourself together. God's plan is going to take care of the rest. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.